Hey there, this is Lori. Greetings from the future. I just popped in real quick to say pardon, sorry, astute merlide. I apologize for the delay in getting this uploaded. I encountered a series of setbacks, but I improvised, adapted, and overcame. Feels somewhat ironic that my episode on time was a little late, but better late than never, right? This is an independent, ad-free, one-woman show. I am the host, writer, researcher, editor, and producer, as well as being the man behind the curtain. Thank you for your patience. It is very much appreciated. Now let's get on with it. I hope you enjoy the show. Here's episode two. Hello, and welcome to Rapid Fire Education with Lori Danger. I am your host, Lori Danger. That's Lori spelled L-O-R-I-E and Danger, well, spelled just like Danger. This is an educational podcast designed to stimulate your gray matter. Do not accept imitations or substitutions in your consumed Lori Danger content, as I cannot attest to the freshness or the quality of those ingredients. I give you my word that I will never mislabel horse meat in the production of this podcast in a deliberate attempt to pass it off as quality beef. And furthermore, I cite all of my sources in the show notes, so you can look there for my research receipts or if you're interested in learning more about today's topics. I do want to quickly acknowledge that at least one of the sources I used for today is unfortunately and inconveniently hidden behind a paywall, but don't worry. You can get around to consume the content in the same way Swim did, which is by forcing your phone browser to go into reader or show reader mode. The information is out there, and I want you to be able to access it if you want to. I truly believe that knowledge is power. Are you ready to be dangerous? Let's learn. For today's episode, I've curated a bunch of facts that, if applied correctly and directly to the forehead, will purposefully distort your perception of time. Hence the title of the episode, which, in case you missed it, is Time is an Illusion, an Invention, and a Flat Circle. This entire episode is going to be a speedrun of rapid-fire facts that will leave you questioning what you know, or rather, what you thought you knew. Buckle up, buttercups, it's always safety first, and follow me on this adventure designed to melt your medulla oblongatas by learning some fun facts to know and share. I want to start off with some shared birth years. These are the ones in particular that I found that really tickled my fancy in chronological order. Queen Elizabeth II, David Attenborough, and Marilyn Monroe were all born the same year. Their shared birth year is 1926. Martin Luther King Jr., Barbara Walters, and Anne Frank were all born the same year. Their shared birth year is 1929. Bernie Sanders, Martha Stewart, Bob Dylan, and Emmett Till were all born the same year. Their shared birth year is 1941. Related fun fact, did you know that Harriet Tubman and Rosa Parks were briefly alive and existing on Earth at the same time? Rosa Parks was born on Tuesday, February 4th, 1913, and Harriet Tubman died on Monday, March 10th, 1913, that same year. To bring it full circle, from ashes to ashes, from dust to dust, from birth to death, and the fact that I learned at the beginning of last year of 2023 that really began my time is an illusion, an invention, and a flat circle journey. Did you know that Helen Keller didn't die until 1968? Helen Keller is a fascinating and complicated historical figure that I'm sure I will mention again on a future episode of my show, and the fact that she didn't die until 1968 really blew my mind when I first learned that. And to be honest, I'm not sure that I fully processed that information. It is still blowing my mind to this day. 
In fact, there's actual freaking video footage of Helen Keller that you can watch with your very own eyeballs. I've included a link to one in the show notes if you'd like to check that out. Quick pivot. I transport you. Oh, no, I transport us all back in time to the year 1912. We are staying together like a flock of birds. Buddy system for safety. Everybody find a buddy. Buddy up. Let's do this. Let's go. Oh, um, thank you for choosing rapid fire travel uh, with me, your very responsible podcast captain, Lori Danger. I know you have so many options in your choice of earball escapism, and I truly appreciate your patronage. All right. Uh, cool, cool, cool. Got that out of the way. Good job, me. Perfect placement to remind everybody of the brand. Nailed it. Way to tie it together. Back to the script. And uh, on Monday, April 15th, 1912, the RMS Titanic sank. Super glad I plugged myself before getting it to the sinking of the Titanic, tying those together. Way to go, me. Also in 1912, Anton Kolisch, who was a German chemist, first described the synthesis of the chemical MDMA, also known as ecstasy. And also, also in 1912, Kazimierz Funk, a Polish-American biochemist, was among the first to formulate the concept of vitamins. Coincidence? <gasps> was the Titanic sacrificed in exchange for these scientific breakthroughs? <laughs> Coincidence most definitely yes, but come on, that is a fun thing to speculate about. I've also got a Titanic-related thought that I want to share with everyone listening that I often ruminate upon because it brings me a lot of joy in the perspective that it has to offer. You know, when the Titanic sank, it was an absolute tragedy for all of the people on board. But for the lobsters in the kitchen, it was a full-ass miracle. <laughs> and yes, I said that intentionally because how often do you get the opportunity to say the words full-ass miracle in a sentence? Anyway, hashtag perspective. Slightly longer pivot, this time containing more actual substance. This time, I am transporting us to the year 1977. Pew, 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 pew. <clears throat> Look, I don't have a soundboard. That's like, that's like truly the best that I can do. Can we all pretend that was a cooler noise, please? Thanks. Let's all head a little further less back in time. A bit of a hop, skip, and a jump forward from 1912, where we currently are. Let me make sure I set the dials correctly. And all right, here we are. 1977. I want to discuss this year in four parts. Each part details an event that occurred in 1977. One, Star Wars, later titled Star Wars 4, A New Hope, premiered in theaters on Wednesday, May 25th, 1977. This is the OG Star Wars, the very first, and it introduced the now familiar characters that started it all and that we have all come to know and love. Darth Vader, Princess Leia, Luke Skywalker, Han Solo, R2-D2, and the rest of the gang. This was society's first big screen introduction to their galactic adventures. 2. The first Apple II computer, which was an 8-bit home computer and one of the world's first highly successful mass-produced microcomputer products, marking Apple's first launch of a personal computer aimed at a consumer market, was introduced by Steve Jobs and Steve Wozniak. Shout out to the Woz! He is hands down my favorite tech bro. The dude rules. 
uh, where was I? Uh, up here I was, here we are, at the 1977 West Coast Computer Fair, where the Apple II was first publicly released on Friday, June 10th, 1977. Three, let's talk about silent era movie star Charlie Chaplin, who was also not a good guy. And I will absolutely explain his connection to 1977, but first I would like to say something. Chaplin lived in an era where it was generally acceptable for a rich white dude to be a violent rapist, but God help you if you expressed anything short of a complete condemnation of communism, as that was a sin worthy of excommunication and being professionally blacklisted on a federal level, if not straight up straight to jail. Chaplin was treated poorly and in not fair ways in his time, but uh, not for the right reasons. I'm linking a very... I'm going to use the adjective intense to describe the linked vice article authored by Lauren Euler, written back in 2016 when I still semi-respected the journalistic endeavors of vice as a whole. It really lays out in pretty excruciating detail the many, many who, what, and hows that make up the extensive evidence in the case that Charlie Chaplin was a prolific and sadistic bastard, but the full details of that are going to be left for you to do with what you will. I have said enough now that you know, and you're free to take that and learn more about it if you so choose. The links are in the show notes. I have also included, <clears throat> excuse me, I included that previously mentioned Vice article, as well as the one that, as as well as one that details Chaplin's political life. I will leave it at the statement that Charlie Chaplin was quite the womanizer, and he preferred his partners to be young, like for the most part, uncomfortably teenage young, which is not great to say the least. Something, something grooming and power imbalances, anyone? Yikes. Any hoops. Charlie Chaplin, 1977. Charlie Chaplin died at 88 years old on Christmas Day, Sunday, December 25th, 1977. Four. On Saturday, September 10th, 1977, Hamida Jindalbi was the last person in France to be executed by guillotine and the last person to be lawfully execu executed by beheading in the Western world although he was not the last person to be sentenced to death in France. Hamida Jindalbi was a Tunisian man who had moved to France in 1968, and six years later he kidnapped, tortured, and murdered 22-year-old Elizabeth Bousquet. He was sentenced to death in February of 1977 and was executed by guillotine as punishment for his crimes the following September of that same year, which again was 1977. Huh. One of these things is not like the others. And yet, all of these events occurred in the year 1977. Don't you just love it when history is real weird? I know I do. Okay, next up, I want to talk to you about U.S. Civil War widows. I recently read an article that stated the last U.S. Civil War widow passed away in 2003, and my brain knee-jerk went, <laughs> no way that's true, and I started off on a rabbit hole of research. And don't worry, I'm about to tell you how that statement is utter bollocks fake news. Yep. Because the last U.S. Civil War widow actually died in 2020. To backtrack my steps down this rabbit hole, I first started out learning about Civil War widows' pensions, which were an early precursor to today's military death benefits. And while it's true that the last of these Civil War widows' pensions was paid out by the U.S. government in 2003 to Gertrude Janeway, she was not the last surviving U.S. Civil War widow. Gertrude Janeway, received a $70 check every two months for a military pension earned by her late husband, John, who served on the Union side of the U.S. Civil War, 
which ended on Sunday, April 9th, 1865. Okay, so Gertrude and John, the pair married in 1927 when he was 81 and she was, she was 18. Oh, oh no. This is where more red flags than a pro-communism rally would have started flap, flap, flapping in the breeze for me once the ages were revealed. Yeah, it's a bunch of real sad stories that became depressingly common during the Great Depression where relatively young women married relatively old men because of that sweet military pension and its fleeting promise of, hey, this is a way to maybe not starve to death? Not a whole lot of options were available. Shit was bleak. Some of these marriages were in name only. Oh, okay. While others lived as traditional married couples. Oh. So, uh... With that noted, from what I was able to uncover in my research, the last surviving U.S. Civil War widow actually died in 2020. Helen Viola Jackson was 101 years old when she died in 2020. In 1936, in the midst of the Great Depression, at age 17, Helen married 93-year-old James Bowen. This seems to be a case of an in-name-only marriage, but she never applied to receive his pension, fearing damage to her reputation after threats from Bowen's daughters. This was only revealed after she began planning for her own funeral with her pastor, and he helped her to realize the historical significance of this information. The last person to receive Civil War pension money from the U.S. government was Irene Triplett, but she was the daughter of a Civil War veteran, not the wife of one. She died on Sunday, May 31st, 2020. Irene Triplett's father first fought for the Confederacy, and then later in the war, her pop switched sides and fought for the Union, which is why he was eligible for a pension that she was able to later collect from. Better late than never to end up on the right side of history, I suppose? Following her father's death in 1938, at age 92, Irene collected $73.13 per month from the Department of Veterans Affairs. She was eligible to inherit her father's pension due to cognitive impairments that she had, so her disabilities qualified her as, quote, the helpless child of a veteran, end quote. After the 2018 death of Fred Upham, who was the son of William H. Upham, Irene Triplett was the last surviving child of a U.S. Civil War veteran. Let's, uh, let's move on from that. Let's continue to expand our neural pathways. More rapid fire education time about literally anything else, please. Let's start with a simple one that really rocked my world when I first heard it. Did you know that sharks are older than trees? The earliest evidence of shark fossils dates to as far back as 450 million years ago, which is around 90 million years before trees, and at least 190 million years before dinosaurs showed up. Sharks have been swimming in Earth's oceans since before Pangaea broke apart. Pangaea was the name for the one single continent that all the other continents Megatron to form before they all inevitably split and broke apart into the seven pieces we all know and love today with that breakup having happened something like 250 million years ago. Sharks, as a species, have somehow managed to survive not one, not two, but five mass extinction events, including the one which was estimated to have wiped out 95% of all known marine life around at the time. Sharks are not older than the sun, nor are they older than the planet Earth, which like, duh, right? But did you know that sharks are older than the rings of Saturn, as the rings of Saturn are far younger than the actual planet of Saturn itself? Because, yup, sharks are indeed that old. That's a fact. On to the next. 
Are you aware of the fact that Coca-Cola is only 25 years younger than the country of Italy? In 1861, the various states on the Italian peninsula unified themselves, and Italy officially became a country. 25 years later, in 1886, Atlanta pharmacist and Confederate States Army veteran Dr. John S. Pemberton concocted Coca-Cola and ended up somewhat desperately selling the syrup to his neighborhood pharmacy. Dr. John had been stabbed by a saber in April 1865 during the Battle of Columbus in the U.S. Civil War, where he fought as a Confederate against the Union, and he suffered from chronic pain from said saber stab wound for the rest of his life, which, uh, sucks to suck, I guess? Should have been on that right side of history, Brosif. His chronic pain was so severe that it led him to a morphine addiction. He began to experiment with blending and mixing various painkillers and tonics and attempts to create something that would help him to ultimately quit the morphine. Long and pretty sad story short, he was never really able to quit the morphine and ended up dying from stomach cancer in August 1888 at age 57. I feel compelled to share this quote from Pemberton's Wikipedia entry, which is, quote, At the time of his death, he also suffered from poverty end quote, which yo, bro, samesies. Another country origin fact that broke my brain real good. Were you aware that Germany didn't officially become a country until 1871? I had always imagined Germany to be an old, old country like France or England, but no. That means the United States has been an established country for almost a hundred years longer than Germany has. <gasps> yeah, ikwais, mein Gott. Before 1871, before Germany was Germany, it was a conglomeration of many kingdoms and empires, similar to how Italy was prior to becoming Italy. Proto-Germany regions were divided into principalities and remnants of the Holy Roman Empire, and it was referred to as Prussia. Also related, did you know that the actor Chuck Norris is older than the modern state of Israel? Because yeah, he sure is. Chuck Norris was born on Sunday, March 10th, 1940. And the day after he was born, Chuck Norris drove his mother home because he was a very sweet and considerate little baby and he wanted his mom to get some rest. Chuck Norris also built the hospital he was born in. All right, governor. Meh, blimey. You got me. Those are both not true stories that I just made up because jokes are always funniest when you explain them. <sighs> Those statements would be examples of a specific hyperbolic joke style, known as a Chuck Norris fact, where the action star's strength, abilities, life accomplishments, and general backstory are heavily exaggerated as a popular joke style. These became so popular that Chuck Norris himself cashed in on the concept, authoring a book titled The Official Chuck Norris Fact Book, 101 of Chuck's Favorite Facts and Stories. He's written at least 28 books in total on a variety of topics, and I will absolutely be giving you more Chuck backstory in an upcoming future episode. But for now, the important takeaway here is that Chuck Norris was born on Sunday, March 10th, 1940. At the strike of midnight on Friday, May 14th, 1948 in Tel Aviv, the Provisional Government of Israel proclaimed a new state of Israel, establishing the first Jewish state in 2000 years. This makes Chuck Norris roughly about eight years older than the modern state of Israel. Nations and countries, those are social constructs, apart from being names for a physical location. 
Borders are imaginary lines that we have collectively agreed upon and assigned importance. No, I will not be taking questions, and yes, we are moving on. Next up, did you know that Oxford University is older than the Aztec Empire by like 300 some odd years? The construction of Tenochtitlan, which was an island on what was then Lake Texcoco, is now the modern and is now the modern historic center of Mexico City, was the dawning of the Aztec civilization. While the exact date of the founding of the city is unclear, the date of March 13, 1325 was chosen to celebrate the 600th anniversary of the city in 1925. I did attempt to figure out what day of the week that would have fallen on, knowing full well there would be issues with factors like alterations to and the very invention of the Gregorian calendar, and I was correct. Google basically gave me a collective shrug. The city of Tenochtitlan was the capital of the expanding Aztec Empire, and its construction marks the beginnings of the Aztec civilization. Evidence exists that shows Oxford University has been teaching students since 1096. The University of Oxford is a collegiate university located in Oxford, England, and it is the oldest university in the English-speaking world. Speaking of institutions of higher learning, did you know that Harvard University is older than calculus? Because indeed, it is. Harvard was founded in 1636 in Cambridge, Massachusetts as Harvard College and was named after its first benefactor, the Puritan clergyman John Harvard. Sir Isaac Newton claims to have invented calculus between 1664 and 1666. But, like, Pixar didn't happen? <laughs> in 1669, Newton wrote a paper on calculus but refused to publish it. He wrote two additional papers in 1671 and 1676 on calculus, and the one written in 1669 was published in 1736, nine years after Newton's death in 1727. I'm going in for a bit of a double dip with another speaking of segue, but this time I'm speaking of Sir Isaac Newton. Newton first developed his three laws of motion in 1666, when Newton was the ripe old age of 23 years young. He eventually presented his three laws of motion in 1687 in what is generally regarded to be his seminal masterpiece. The title's a bit of a doozy, but I'm going to attempt it. My Latin is not great, so apologies for that in advance. Sorry, sorry a second time. And here we go. The title is Philosophia Naturalis Principia Mathematica. Nailed it. And when translated from Latin into English, that means mathematical principles of natural philosophy. Again, my apologies about that. I absolutely did my best, but as we all know, Latin is a dead language. And I, well, I am very much alive. And I do not speak Latin. Moving on. To put it simply, in that paper, Newton explained how outside forces affect the movement of objects. To give that more complex context, I want to quote from the LibraryofCongress.com summary on Philosophia Naturalis Principia Mathematica that is definitely linked in the show notes. Quote, Its appearance was a turning point in the history of science and is considered by many as the most important scientific work ever published. Newton was a professor of mathematics at Trinity College, Cambridge, when he produced the work. It presents the basics of physics and astronomy, formulated in the language of pure geometry. It is, the, it is a deductive work in, in which the very propositions, mechanical properties, are demonstrated in the form of theorems. 
It lays the foundations of hydrostatics, hydrodynamics, and acoustics, and systemizes a method for the study of nature by mathematical means. The work was written in Latin, which indicates its intended audience. Experts in mathematics and mechanics, astronomers, philosophers, and university graduates. The Principia, as the work is known, consists of three books, preceded by a preliminary chapter of definitions, and another that deals with axioms, or the laws of movement. The definitions, eight in total, define the vocabulary that is used throughout the text and introduces the concept of absolute space and time. Book one, Axioms and the Laws of Movement, is by far the best known part of that work, end quote. Newton's three laws of motion are as, uh, <laughs> Newton's three laws of motion are as follows. One, quote, a body at rest will remain at rest and a body in motion will remain in motion unless it is acted upon by an external force, end quote. This is often referred to as the law of inertia. This first law or axiom basically says that every object, every single thing will keep on keeping on doing how it do. If something is, is stationary, it will not start to move about by itself of its own power. And if something is moving, its direction and speed will not change unless something, an outside or external force, makes it change. Thing keep doing what do, unless new thing make thing different do. 2. Quote, the net force of an object is equal to the rate of change of linear momentum in an inertial reference frame. End quote. Or to put it slightly more simply, but still in quite academic terms, quote, the force acting on an object is equal to the mass of that object times its acceleration, end quote. This just means that objects travel faster and farther when they are pushed harder, and that heavier objects require more power to move the same amount of distance as lighter objects do. 3. Quote, All forces between two objects exist in equal magnitude in opposite direction. It is on this third law that gravitational dynamics as a system of reciprocal attraction is based, end quote. Put more simply, quote, for every action there's an equal and opposite reaction, end quote. When an object moves or is pushed in one direction, there is always an equal resistance in the opposite direction. A good example is in how a rocket works. Powerful engines are the action pushing down on or upon the ground, and resistance that the ground provides thrusts the rocket upward with the reaction of an equal force. So now we are all on the same page about what Newton's Philosophia Naturalis Principia Mathematica is and his three laws of motion that were first published by the Royal Society of London on Sunday, July 5th, 1687. In sharp contrast to that important scientific contribution, just five, yep, count them, five short years after the publication of Newton's three laws of motion, across the pond and in February of 1692, the Salem Witch Trials began in America. USA! USA! I think it's also interesting to note, at least in relation to the Salem Witch Trials, none of the condemned were sentenced to death by burning at the stake. Of those 20 poor human souls who were condemned to death, they were either hung or crushed to death under rocks in an ancient torture-slash-interrogation technique known as pressing that was intended to make the person being crushed under said rocks say, well... Whatever the torturer wanted the victim being crushed to say, to put it bluntly. There were 19 people total executed by hanging, 14 women and 5 men, as well as 2 dogs who were additionally hung for their supposed witchcraft crimes. Giles Corey was the one lone victim who was not hung. 
You may remember him as the guy who responded, more rocks, when it was demanded that he enter a plea of guilty or not guilty. He understandably died under the unimaginable weight of those stones being pressed against his body and what would become the only example of such a legal sanction in American history. Key word there being legal. By refusing to enter a plea, his estate passed on to his sons after his death rather than being seized by the local government. So score one for the little guy? Too bad that small victory came at the expense of his life. That's just one awesome example of mere mortal badassery in history. Insert electric guitar solo here. I got no soundboard. We've already established that. <sighs> Use your imaginations for... Ugh, please. Wow, that really frustrated me. And that's not, that's not a cute look for me. Perhaps we should all take this opportunity to take a brief pause. Take a deep breath. In through our noses, out through our mouth. You want to do one with me? Because... Oh, yeah. That is definitely better. Let's resume the episode. Speaking of American history, did you know that when the Pilgrims landed on Plymouth Rock in 1620, the Palace of the Governors was already standing in New Mexico? Indeed. The Palace of the Governors was built in 1610. To further blow your minds, were you aware that New Mexico was not named after the nation of Mexico? Contrary to popular belief, New Mexico was established and named 200 years before the naming of the country of Mexico, which happened in 1821. Spanish settlers named the lands Nuevo Mexico or New Mexico after the Aztec god Mexitli. Mexico is an Aztec word that means place of Mexitli. The lands north of the Rio Grande were referred to as Nuevo Mexico as early as 1561. Next up, did you know that the fax machine was invented the same year that migration by covered wagon began on the Oregon Trail? Because yup yup, both of those events occurred in the year 1843. To tell you more about the invention of the fax machine, I want to quote from an article written by Lindsay Neural titled, When Was the Fax Machine Invented? that is deflinked in the show notes. Quote, the fax or facsimile machine sends text or graphic message from a scanner through the phone line to a printer, which can print out the message on standard paper for the recipient to read. Since the phone lines can only pick up audio, the data is converted into tones and frequencies that the fax interprets as black and white forming the overall composition of the page. The fax also has been called a telecopy or a telefax machine in its earlier days, but most people just call it a fax now. While it was a standalone piece of equipment in its infancy, today's faxes are often bundled together with printer and technology. Many HP all-in-ones, for example, feature print, fax, copy, and scan capabilities, since these tasks are closely related in how they work. You can also send and print out full-color faxes in more vibrant detail than ever before. The first recognizable version of what we consider the, the telephone fax was created in 1964 by the Xerox company, but the technology that led to the advancement of that was created much, much earlier." End quote. Much earlier than 1964 indeed, Scottish inventor Alexander Bain was tinkering around trying to create a chemical-mechanical fax-type device. He achieved success and applied for and was granted British Patent 9745 on Saturday, May 27, 1843, for his electric printing telegraph. English physicist Frederick Bakewell 
went on to improve Bain's design and was able to demonstrate a telefax machine. The pan telegraph was invented by Italian physicist Giovanni Caselli, who was able to introduce the first commercial telefax service between the French cities of Paris and Lyon in 1865, which was some 11 years before the invention of the telephone by Alexander Graham Bell. That is all fascinating information, and I couldn't resist leaving it all in. But let's take a few steps back to our main focus, which is Alexander Bain's achievements in May of 1843 with the first electric printing telegraph. Because across the Atlantic, and also in May of that same year, 1843 specifically, on Monday, May 22, 1843, the first large group of covered wagons left Independence, Missouri, headed to the West Coast by taking the Oregon Trail. Well, it was actually two groups of about 500 to 1,000 people. First, there was the 120-some-odd wagons, and then the families, with thousands of heads of cattle following behind, but they were all traveling together pretty much. And on Monday, May 22, 1843, they all started out on the Oregon Trail to begin what would eventually become a five-month journey, thus opening the floodgates for even more pioneer migration to follow after, where hundreds of thousands of pioneers would migrate west along that same trail, and later it came to be known as the Great Emigration of 1843. Next up. Did you know that woolly mammoths still walk the earth when the Great Pyramid of Giza was being built? Because yup, they sure did. The Great Pyramid of Giza is the largest Egyptian pyramid and rises something like 481 feet or 147 meters above the desert sand. It is the oldest of the seven wonders of the ancient world, and of those seven wonders, it is the only one to remain largely intact today. Pharaoh Khufu began the construction on his Great Pyramid sometime around 2550 BC, and its construction was completed about 10 years later, around the year 2560 BC. The pyramid is estimated to be made up of 2.3 million stone blocks, with each individual stone weighing an average of 2.5 to 15 tons. Before I move on to the mammoths, I have to briefly tell you about something that I recently learned about. I found contradictions in the sources on exactly what number it specifically is, meaning whether it's number 7 or whether it's number 9, but regardless of its exact rank, one of the world's 10 largest pyramids is, and I shit you not, a functional Bass Pro Shop megastore located in Memphis, Tennessee. I linked a businessinsider.com article written by Kate Taylor in the show notes, and I'd like to quote from it now in some kind of an attempt at an explanation as to why this is a thing. First, I want to quote from the, like, sub-headlines? Is the correct term? Bylines? I care, but not that much. Please don't at me. Moving on. First bullet point headline is, quote, One of the largest pyramids in the world is a Bass Pro Shops megastore in Memphis, Tennessee. End quote. Uh, bullet two is, quote, The pyramid also hosts a hotel, indoor swamp, and a bowling alley. End quote. Bullet three is, quote, however, for roughly a decade, the pyramid was empty, and some believed it was cursed due to a crystal skull installed by the owner of the Rainforest Cafe, end quote. <laughs> Take two of one of these things is not like the others. One of these things is really, really weird. This is quite the turducken of bizarre, stuffed into an already very weird article. It's definitely linked in the show notes show notes under Woolly Mammoth slash Pyramid of Giza if you want to check it out, because it's pretty top tier in my humble opinion. 
Oh, and um, if you have questions about the haunting rumors related to the Crystal Skull in the Rainforest Cafe, hi, welcome, join the club. I also have questions, but we're moving on. I'd like to remind you that this is a businessinsider.com article, and there are further mentions of the skull haunting rumor later on in that article. So before I fully move us on, I want to read you this quote about the rumors from the article. Quote, The Hard Rock Cafe founder, who reportedly placed the skull at the top of the pyramid, told the New York Times that the dark rumors were utter nonsense. However, he did say he had placed several other crystal and mystic objects in the pyramid as part of the glamour and mystery and mysticism of Egypt. End quote. So it seems like the official line from the founder of the Hard Rock Cafe, who's also the owner of the Rainforest Cafe, is, Ain't no way it's haunted from that skull. If anything, the pyramid's haunted because of all that other crap I put in it, in my icky capitalist cultural appropriation efforts. <laughs> Which, okay, chef's kiss, no notes. That's, that's good stuff. We are, we are again moving on. I want to further quote from that same article to bring us back on track. Quote, Memphis, Tennessee has a sound historical reason to want to build a pyramid. The city was named after Memphis, a city in Egypt, when it was founded in 1819. At 321 feet, the building is a bit smaller than the Great Pyramid of Giza, which was originally 481 feet tall, end quote. And for the non-Americans among us who do not use freedom units, 321 feet is roughly 97 meters, and 481 feet is roughly 146 meters. So that's neat. Let's get back to those woolly mammoths that I had previously mentioned. I chose the Great Pyramid of Giza as my comparison pivot point, but I'd like to quote from a science.org article authored by Michael Price that uses the Epic of Gilgamesh as a contrast, because variety is the spice of life. Quote, About 3,700 years ago, as Mesopotamian poets were composing the Epic of Gilgamesh, the last woolly mammoths on Earth were making their last stand on a remote Arctic island. A terminal colony persisted on tiny Wrangell Island, north of the Siberian mainland, thousands of years after the rest of its kind have disappeared. Now, a new study reveals the mammoth's horrific final days. A series of harmful genetic mutations appears to have led to what authors call a genomic meltdown in the population. Woolly mammoths by the tens of thousands once roamed across Ice Age grasslands spanning Europe. Asia, and the northern reaches of North America. But after the global climate began warming some 12,000 years ago, mossy tundra began to replace grasses, depriving the massive animals, roughly the size of modern African elephants, of their most important food source. Human hunters further culled their numbers. Woolly mammoths went extinct on the mainland about 10,000 years ago, but small pocket populations persisted on islands isolated from human contact. End quote. Next up, the earliest known bronze gun that used gunpowder was invented and fired in China from the early Huan Dynasty and dates back to 1332 AD. Meanwhile, the French versus English Battle of Cressy, which ended in 1346 AD, is considered revolutionary because of the use of a brand new weapon, the crossbow. That battle is also noted for longbow use. You may have noted that both of those weapons are notably not a gun. Next, 
First off, let's talk about Machu Picchu. Machu Picchu is an Incan citadel located in southern Peru in South America. It is the most familiar icon of the Inca Empire and is sometimes referred to as the Lost Cities of the Incas. Radiocarbon testing, also known as carbon-14 dating, places the date of the construction of Machu Picchu to around 1450 AD. About 23 years later, in 1473 AD, in Europe, construction began on the Sistine Chapel. Next up, did you know that the Eiffel Tower opened to the public the same year Nintendo was founded? Because yes, indeed, both of those events occurred in 1889. On Sunday, March 31st, 1889, after construction began in 1887, the Eiffel Tower opened to the public as part of a celebration honoring the centenary or 100-year anniversary of the French Revolution. Nintendo was originally founded on Monday, September 23, 1889, as Nintendo Kopai by craftsman Fusajiro Yamaguchi in Kyoto, Japan, as a playing card company. All right brace yourselves. I am beginning to prepare for another pivot. This one is going to be a bit of a left turn, or mm, a right turn? Depends on which way you're currently facing. Either way, hold on, pivot engaged. Alright, this is definitely going to start off with a bit of a sad tone, and then it's going to spiral down even further. But I did do my best to space out and provide the perfect placement as to where I put the bummers, and to sandwich them in between some less devastating but still very interesting facts designed to distort your perception of time. Don't worry, there's nowhere to go from the bottom but up, up and away! And I give you my pledge and my promise that we will be ending this episode on a high note, and will go out with a bang, to the very best of my ability. With that caveat explained and out of the way, let's continue on to the next portion that I have planned out for us in this earball escapism journey. Were you aware that it takes Pluto 248 Earth years to fully complete one revolution around the Sun? This means that from the time Pluto was discovered in 1830 until the time that Pluto lost its planet status and was downsized to a dwarf planet in 2006, which was a total of 76 Earth years, in those 76 Earth years, Pluto failed to complete even one lap around the Sun. Sad trombone noises. Now that I eased us all in with the sad former planet fact, there's really no joking about this next one. It's just it's just a really grim comparison point that exists. Let's all have fun being sad together through continuing education. Yay! I'm going to be talking about the year 1940. Skoden. On Wednesday, May 15, 1940, the first corporate McDonald's restaurant opened in San Bernardino, California, by brothers Richard and Maurice MacDonald. About a month later, and across the Atlantic, in Europe, specifically in occupied Poland, Auschwitz concentration camp, which is fully known as Auschwitz-Birkenau, or in the German Konzentrationslager Auschwitz-Birkenau, became operational on Friday, June 14, 1940, with the first mass transport of 728 Polish political prisoners arriving on the grounds. Most of these 728 prisoners were Catholics, as the mass deportation of Jews had not yet begun. I'd also like to briefly mention the fact that technically, the first religious group that was specifically targeted for persecution by the Nazis was Jehovah's Witnesses. 
oh my god, it's like the Nazis were like total dicks and just hated everyone that wasn't them. Oh shit, that's a hot, is that a hot take these days? It kind of is, and it definitely shouldn't be. I had a whole exaggerated and sarcastic joke written out to go here, but you know what? I'm tired. Nazis were and are bad. It is what it is, yo. Counterpoint. It's not what it's not. The Nazis went after the Jehovah's Witnesses just as ferociously as they eventually went after the Jews. Due to the Jehovah's Witnesses being unwilling to perform military service, join Nazi organizations, or give allegiance to the Hitler regime because it directly conflicted with their religious beliefs. They were the first Christian denomination banned by the Nazi government, and an estimated 10,000 Jehovah's Witnesses were sent to concentration camps over the course of World War II. Since I'm talking about the beginnings of Auschwitz, I'd like to take this time to mention a hero who spent time there. I'm talking about Polish resistance fighter Witold Pilecki. He was one of the co-founders of the secret Polish army resistance movement, and he is known as the Auschwitz Volunteer. But after learning the specifics of his backstory, this is my hill and I will die on it, and this in no way diminishes his bravery nor his hero status, but the man was straight up voluntold to go investigate Auschwitz from the inside, from the very first days of the Konzentrationslager, which again is the German word for concentration camp. And to his absolute credit, he did it. He did it so hard. He polekied the hell out of Auschwitz. Well, to the best of his ability, he did that. In 1940, he allowed himself to be captured by the occupying Germans in order to infiltrate the camp. Once inside, he organized a resistance movement that eventually had hundreds of inmates in its ranks and was able to secretly write hundreds of reports detailing the atrocities the Nazis were committing inside the camp which he was eventually able to smuggle out to the home army headquarters once he successfully escaped to Auschwitz. Once he successfully escaped from Auschwitz and was able to share his reports with the Western allies to inform them of what exactly was going on in there and how hellish the conditions actually were. He was unfortunately unable to single-handedly destroy the sprawling complex of what would continue to grow to become a well-oiled mass murder factory but that is an incredibly Herculean task to ask of one mere mortal man. He was able to successfully escape with his life and his reports to tell everyone who would listen about what he had experienced and witnessed firsthand. There's an incredible book that consists of Vitold's reports, which could also be described as a diary titled The Auschwitz Volunteer, Beyond Bravery, if you'd like to read more about him. And also, if it's more your speed or style, there's an awesome three-part episode series on him by the Lions Led by Donkeys podcast that I would also highly recommend. Next up, still dark but less, less-ish? Less-ish dark but still dark. Did you know that there were five years where you could take the London Underground Railway System of Public Transportation to see a public hanging? Because you sure could, bud. The London Underground first began operating on Saturday, January 10th, 1863. On Tuesday, May 26, 1868, Michael Barrett was the last man to be publicly hung outside of the walls of Newgate Prison in front of a gathered crowd of about 2,000 people who booed, jeered, and went on to sing as his body dropped. Michael Barrett was executed as punishment for his participation in the deadly Clerkenwell bombing explosion that occurred in December of 1867. 
So that's neat. Nowhere to go from here but up, up and away. Were you aware that the first U.S. president, George Washington, did know about the existence of dinosaurs? Because he sure did not. George Washington died on Saturday, December 14th, 1799. And, okay, the dinosaur explanation requires a bit of backstory, and this is very much the Cliff Notes summarized version. Everyone, please make sure you're buckled up, my buttercups, because the number one rule around here in my podcast is safety first. The first scientific account about a dinosaur fossil was published in 1677 in Europe. Englishman Robert Plott described the lower end of a thigh bone that formed the knee of the Megalosaurus, but he was talking about in his observations about what he saw looking at a portion of a thigh bone of an animal he didn't even know was a reptile. But that's the first record. Let's jump forward to 1820, which was 21 years after George Washington died. 1820 was when more complete fossilized skeletons of Megalosaurus and Iguanodon were discovered by geologists and doctors who realized them bones belonged to long-ago extinct dinosaurs. Since we are on the topic of early presidents of the United States, I'd like to tell you next about how third president of the U.S., Thomas Jefferson, died the same year the first photograph was taken. Thomas Jefferson died on Tuesday, July 4, 1826. Also in 1826, French scientist Joseph Nicephore Nepes, sorry, I don't, I don't speak French, took the first photograph at his family's country home and titled it View from the Window at Le Gras. The photograph shows a view of a courtyard and outbuildings seen from the house's upstairs window. Next up, did you know that the Battle of Little Bighorn was raging whilst the Brooklyn Bridge was being built? Because, yup, that is a fact. The Battle of Little Bighorn, also known as Custer's Last Stand, took place on Sunday, June 25th, and Monday, June 26th, 1876. Construction of the Brooklyn Bridge began in 1870, and the Brooklyn Bridge opened on Thursday, May 24th, 1883. Next, did you know that the telly show MASH was on the air and lasted over three times longer than the war it was set during? MASH was on the air from 1972 to 1983. But the Korean War only lasted three years, from 1950 to 1953. Hmm. Next up. Are you aware that the term plastic surgery predates the invention of plastic as a textile material? The term is derived from the Greek language, specifically the Greek word plastikos, which describes the art of shaping, molding, or sculpting tissues. The concept of that as a profession dates all the way back to 800 BC in India, where forehead flaps were used to reconstruct amputated noses. The ancient Egyptians and Romans also performed what would today be considered plastic surgery to restore defects in the ears and lips and to enhance skin appearance. The term plastique was first used by French anatomist and surgeon de Salt in 1798, to describe procedures being performed on body parts from the head to the toes. I want to quote from a nationallibraryofmedicine.gov article that you know I've linked in the show notes. Quote, However, the term plastic was first incorporated by von Graef in his monograph Rhinoplastic, published in 1818. The term plastic surgery was used by Zeiss of Germany as part of the title of his classical work Handbuch der Plastischen Chirurgie, published in 1838, and the term thereafter became popularized, end quote. 
The first fully synthetic plastic was invented in 1907 by Belgian chemist and clever marketer Leo Bakeland in New York, and he went on to later coin the term plastics. He was able to beat his Scottish rival to the patent office by one day. Early bird gets the worm, yo. Bakeland called his invention Bakelite, and it was made up of two chemicals, formaldehyde and phenol, that were combined under heat and pressure. Bakeland sparked what would become a consumer boom in affordable, easily machine-replicated, and highly sought-after products. Next up, on Friday, April 14, 1865, when Samuel J. Seymour was five years old, his parents took him to see a production of the play Our American Cousin at Ford's Theater in Washington, D.C., which happened to be on the same night and at the same location where Abraham Lincoln was assassinated by well-known at the time as an actor, John Wilkes Booth. It would be today's equivalent of seeing Tom Cruise shoot the sitting president in the back of the head while in the audience, not on the screen, at an IMAX showing in the latest Marvel movie. At age five. Freaking yikes a right? That sure would be confusing, to say the least. Well, much later on in his life, in 1956, Samuel J. Seymour went on to recount that childhood experience on the CBS game show, I've Got a Secret. On to the next. Did you know that the first person to die in an airplane crash died in said airplane crash a little less than a month before the Ford Model T automobile was first produced? Because that is a fact. Thomas Ethelin Selfridge had an objectively awesome name. He was a first lieutenant in the U.S. Army and the first recorded fatality in regards to airplane crashes. He died on Thursday, September 17, 1908. The Ford Model T automobile is generally regarded as the first mass affordable automobile and the automobile which made car travel available to the American middle class demographic. The Model T first began production on Thursday, October 1st, 1908. Speaking about early aviation, were you aware that Orville Wright was still alive when the atomic bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki occurred? Because yeah, he definitely was. I'm making the comparison point of Orville Wright contrasted against the end of the Second World War, but I want to briefly share a small antidote regarding Orville Wright and the First World War. In October of 1917, which was six months after the U.S. had officially entered World War I on the side of the Allied powers, Orville stated that he believed airplanes, because of their capabilities for scouting, were agents of peace. He also wrote that, quote, the nation with the most eyes will win the war and put an end to war, end quote. He additionally wrote, days before the end of World War I, that, quote, the aeroplane has made war so terrible that I do not believe any country will again care to start a war, end quote. Oh my god, what a beautiful sentiment from an adorably sweet, optimistic, and innocently naive idiot, because that is super not how people work. Okay, I recently saw a meme that read, quote, what's the stupidest, most trivial thing you would do if you had the ability to time travel without affecting history? Personally, I would make T.S. Eliot watch Cats, end quote. And, <laughs> and I think I finally figured out what my version of that would be. I would go back in time to right after the U.S. dropped those nukes on Japan, and I would hug Orville Wright and tell him that he know, I know he tried oh so freaking hard to speak truth to power, 
and that his high hopes for humanity, it was truly admirable that he had hopes that high, and that it's not his fault. Orville, it's not your fault. It wasn't your fault, bud. Humanity as a whole is... However, humanity did create Doritos, right? So there's that. There's, I mean, there's definitely that. I would blow Orville's entire damn mind with the goodness of nacho cheese Doritos. Because really, what else could I offer the man? Here's a hug and some Doritos. That's pretty good, right? I think so. Did you know they make a sweet and tangy barbecue Dorito flavor now? Hot damn, what a time to be alive. Moving on, or moving back to the point. Orville Wright died on Friday, January 30th, 1948. On Monday, August 6th, and on Thursday, August 9th of 1945, the United States detonated two atomic bombs over the Japanese cities of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. To do a callback to the beginning of this episode, and to use Barbara Walters for scale, in 1945, when the atomic bombs were dropped on Japan, Barbara Walters was 16 years old. And that's how you do a callback, baby! Next up, and oh, we are scraping the bottom of the barrel here. This is the final push. Lee Petty won the inaugural first Daytona 500 on Sunday, February 22nd, 1959, which was the exact same year that Hawaii and Alaska both officially became U.S. states. Hawaii was admitted to the Union on on Friday, August 21st, 1959, and Alaska was admitted earlier in the year on Saturday, January 3rd, 1959. Next up. JFK was assassinated on Friday, November 22nd, 1963. The very next night, the very first episode of the BBC telly show Doctor Who aired. The episode had to be repeated the following week as media coverage of JFK's death largely overshadowed the 25-minute pilot episode titled An Unearthly Child. Second to last fact. Did you know that Frank Sinatra died on Thursday, May 14th, 1998, which is the exact same day that the series finale of Seinfeld aired? Yep. Last, but certainly not least, this is one of my favorite time perception bending facts. Did you know that Pablo Picasso died the same year that Pink Floyd's Dark Side of the Moon was released in 1973? Dark Side of the Moon was released on Thursday, March 1st, 1973. Pablo Picasso died a little over a month later, on Sunday, April 8, 1973, from pulmonary edema and heart failure at age 91 years old. This means there is a greater than zero chance, nay, there was an opportunity, a brief window that acted as a sliver in time and possibility that Picasso got to listen to that album. And that makes me smile with my whole heart. What was that? Oh, that was my nerd alert new word alarm going off. Hey, nerds. It's a new word drop. Have you heard of the word eschatology before? That's spelled E-S-C-H-A-T-O-L-O-G-Y. And simply put, it's the study of the end of times. It's the branch of theology that is focused on the doctrine of the last things, but can also be used more broadly to refer to any theory about the end of human life or the end of the world particularly when used through the lens of Catholic or Christian theology, eschatology is generally concerned with the four elements of eschatology, 
or the so-called four last things, which are death, judgment, heaven, and hell. Additionally to those four elements, sometimes purgatory is added, as well as the resurrection of the body. Eschatology concerns expectations about the end of the present age, human history, and or the entire world itself. The end of the world, or the end of times, is predicted by several major world religions, both Abrahamic and non-Abrahamic. Belief that the end of the world is imminent is known as apocalypticism, and to quote from the Eschatology Wikipedia page, quote, apocalypticism over time has been held by members of both mainstream religions and by doomsday cults, end quote. The word eschatology comes from the ancient Greek eschatos, which is where the portion of the word eska comes from, meaning last, and ology, meaning the study of. It first appeared in the English language around 1844. To begin the ending of this episode, I'd like to close by quoting a Tumblr post by two users, Homosexual Having Tea and Quicksilver Eyes. Quote, You ever think about how unified humanity is by just everyday experiences? Tudor peasants had hangnails, Nobles in the Quinn dynasty had favorite foods. Workers in the 1700s liked seeing flowers growing in pavement cracks. A cook in medieval Iran teared up cutting onions. A mom in 1300 told her son not to get grass stains on his clothes. Some girl in the past loved staying up late to see the sunrise. There are scriptures all over the world painstakingly crafted hundreds of years ago with paw prints and spelling mistakes or drawings covering up mistakes. A bunch of teenage girls 2,000 years ago gathered to walk around their hometown getting fast food and laughing with their friends. Two friends shared blankets before people lived in houses. A mother ran a fine comb through her child's hair and told it to stop squirming sometime in the 1,000s. There are covered-up sewing mistakes in couture dresses from the late 1800s. Some poor Roman burnt their food so well past recognition that they just buried the entire pot. There are broken dishes hidden in gardens of people no one even remembers anymore. End quote. And now to fully wrap this episode up with a big beautiful bow, I would like to end by reading a Reddit comment that was left by Reddit user Ask Me About My Underscore Beer Gut, all one word. I read this many moons ago, and I've lost the context surrounding the how and why this comment was originally left, or even in what subreddit it was left in. Regardless of the absence of context, it has provided me with a powerful perspective on human history and the times we are currently living in and the lives we are living in general. And in that spirit, I would like to share it with you now. This very much touches my heart and makes me deeply feel my own feelings. Ew! So apologies in advance if my fairly empathetic emotions manage to sneak their way in. Quote, I was diagnosed with stage 4 melanoma cancer five years ago. I fortunately beat it, so far, with immunotherapy drugs. However, I expect it will return before I am able to live to full retirement. I knew I would be dead within six months. It didn't bother me at all, though. Here's how I viewed it. We live in the best time in all of human history. You were able to fly 35k feet in the air at 400 miles per hour to Australia. No human ever in history up until around 100 years ago ever got to experience such an awe-inspiring thing. You've been able to eat better than any king in the history of humanity. Think about the food available to us today. Imagine how kings thought they ate so good all throughout history. They didn't experience probably one one-hundredth of the food you've been able to experience in your life. 
This goes for drink as well. The best things in life are actually the most simple. Hot coffee outside on cool mornings. Grilling a great steak with a cold beer while the sky turns orange as the sun sets. Kittens purring. Puppies playing. My point is this. They estimate there have been around 80 to 100 billion humans who have ever lived. Most humans that ever lived are already gone. But you, my friend, have lived better than 99.9% of them. You won the human lotto. We all did. Drink a cold one for me, buddy, because I'll be right behind you. We are all right behind you. See you on the other side. End quote. That's it. That is the end of the episode. Thank you for learning with me. I want to thank my biological mom, my Hawaiian mom, and finally my fairy pod mothers, Sadie and Courtney Eck. The Eck sisters host a true crime podcast together called They Will Kill that is pretty gosh darn awesome, and if you're interested in true crime told in an informative and respectful manner, I highly recommend you check it out. Courtney Eck also has another podcast called Please Leave, which is a horror fiction podcast where you'll find truly scary stories that you cannot get out of your head. Both They Will Kill and Please Leave are available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and all other major podcast platforms. Thank you for joining me and tune in again next month to continue to learn more about the world around us and the history of how things came to be with me, your host, Lori Danger. If you would like to contact me, you can email me at rfepodcast at gmail.com. Until next time, please stay safe, stay hydrated, and most importantly, stay curious. I love your guts. Goodbye!